invite you to join with me again in prayer as we ask the Lord to bless the reading and proclamation of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your word by the power of your spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. And may you be exalted and glorified. And may we be edified and built up as your holy people. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and for his sake we pray these things. Amen. We are finally out of Acts chapter 9. We move into Acts chapter 10 this morning. I'm going to be reading from chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. There are several scenes. This is a long narrative. I think maybe the longest narrative in all of Acts. And this is a long narrative, so we're going to be moving through these scenes. Uh, But we start with Acts 1, Acts 10, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. At Caesarea, there is a man named Cornelius centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of of our Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. You might have noticed here in Acts 10 a commonality in Cornelius' experience and Peter's experience. Both, of course, were given a vision in which they received a message from the Lord. And these visions will bring these two men together later in this chapter. But if you paid careful attention, then you notice what each man was doing when he received his vision. Each was praying. And what I will refer to as scene one of chapter 10, we find Cornelius, who we are informed, 
was a devout, God-fearing Roman centurion. More about that next Sunday. Anyhow, Cornelius was given a vision in which a messenger of God commended him for his devotion to the Lord in prayer and almsgiving and instructed him to summon Peter from Joppa. We're told that this vision occurred in the ninth hour of the day, which would have been around three in the afternoon. Now, if we know anything about traditional Jewish religious practice, then we would recognize this is one of the three fixed times of Jewish prayer during the day. So while we aren't told explicitly here that Cornelius had this vision while he was praying, it is certainly inferred. It's also confirmed later in chapter 10 and verse 30 when Cornelius states that he was, in fact, praying when he had this vision. Then, in what I will call scene 2, starting in verse 9, we find a very similar thing happened to Peter. We're told that Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, this was not a traditional time of Jewish prayer, which is perhaps the reason why Luke is a little more specific here. Nonetheless, it's during Peter's time of prayer that he, too, received a vision. His vision was of a sheet descending, being let down, as we are told, by its four corners, filled with all kinds of animals, which were considered unclean. And Peter is instructed to rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, being the good Jew that he was, replied that he could never eat such animals as these, but the voice declares to him that these things God has made clean. Now, we will get more into the significance of Peter's vision next Sunday. But for this morning, I want to call our attention to the significance of these men hearing from the Lord during their regular times of prayer. You see, I don't think that this is a coincidence because this isn't the only time we find God encountering his people during their times of prayer. As recently as chapter 9, we are told that while he was praying, Saul was given a vision of Ananias coming to him and laying hands on him that he might regain his sight. In just a few chapters, in chapter 13, we will be told that it's during a time of prayer and fasting that God spoke through the Holy Spirit, giving instruction for Saul and Barnabas to be set apart for the Lord's work. God communicating with his people during their times of prayer is something that Luke is intent to show us. Why? Because it tells us something about how God works through our ordinary piety, through our regular times of devotion to him. He uses our times of prayer to communicate himself and his will to us. And I realize as I say this that it might seem so basic to us that God would choose to speak to us his people, while we are praying, right? But is is it really readily obvious to us Christians in America in the 21st century that if we desire an encounter with the Lord, then the best chance we have is through a means like prayer? 
Is it apparent to us that God would make himself available to us through so simple a means? And if it is obvious, then why have so many neglected the ordinary means of grace, prayer being one of them? Experiencing God in this way, being able to converse with God has to be more difficult than this, right? Surely there must be something special we must truly do to have communion with God, to speak to him and to hear his voice in our lives. This is what Christians seem to think today, don't they? Encountering God must require a trip to a special place, a retreat to a beautiful conference center or to the mountains or to the beach, or maybe we have to take a pilgrimage to a place designated as holy. Or it must involve lighting candles or ringing a bell or maybe the right ambiance through music and lighting in a worship service. Or maybe it's a special day or time that's needed. And if we don't believe this, then why are so many Christians employing these sort of things? Has God commanded us to use these means? Has he promised to meet with us through them? In Acts, though, nothing special is required. The pattern that emerges in Acts is that there was a regular rhythm of life lived in devotion before the Lord, which God had ordained which God had blessed and which God used as a means to reveal himself and speak to his beloved children. The church, as we have heard in Acts 2, had devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It was such a simple pattern of life. It wasn't anything that was complex or required some special condition. The followers of Christ simply have to pray. And they can do this wherever they are at any moment. This is what Luke reveals to us. For Cornelius, he was praying in his home at three in the afternoon. For Peter, he was praying at noon on a housetop, probably Simon the Tanner's. And again and again, we have seen that when God's people prayed, that he showed up in power. And what we are seeing is that the early followers of Christ were, as Jonathan Edwards once put it, laying themselves in the way of allurement. They were laying themselves in the way of allurement. They were placing themselves in a position to encounter God, to commune with him. And they understood the power of these practices because they were the means by which God had promised to meet with them. They were regularly putting themselves in a place to feast on God. This is one of the main reasons why the early church flourished. It's why any church through history truly flourishes. No gimmicks needed. It is simply a commitment to do what we call the ordinary means of grace. As Ray Ortland puts it so well, our gracious Lord is not playing catch me if you can with us. He is not playing catch me if you can with us. He wants us to be sure of him, to come to him, to draw strength from him so that we can live fully for him. 
but he does not give himself to us in any way we might devise. He has made himself knowable and accessible in specific ways of his own wise choosing. His appointed avenues of blessing are the means of grace. If we are wondering where we can be sure to find the Lord, the answer is his standard means of grace made effective by his own living presence. His chosen means are not intended to restrict his availability, but the opposite. His chosen means identify where he has concentrated his availability like a gushing fountain of mercy for sinners who are so desperate that they are finally coming to Christ on his terms. How beautiful is that? That God is gracious to tell us the ways in which we can regularly look for him and find him. But just so we are clear, that doesn't mean that we are able to force God's hand, as it were, simply because we pray regularly. He doesn't have to show up. He doesn't have to listen to our prayers. He doesn't have to speak to us. The reality is that the ordinary means of grace aren't some magical incantation as though if we rub the lamp, the genie will come out and grant our wishes. They don't grant us power to control God. And scripture reveals that the means of grace can be abused. We see in the Old Testament, the people of Judah who are worshiping and praying and fasting in ways that displease the Lord. The Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah, saying to them, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. They treated their devotional lives very mechanically, as Ortland puts it, as if God's grace could work in an automatic way like putting a coin in a gumball machine. They continue to pray and worship and follow prescribed forms of devotion, even as they lived wretched, disobedient lives, believing that the Lord would be gracious to them simply because they were going through the devotional motions. It doesn't work like that, though. God gives us means to meet with him, but we must use them as he intended And by the way, this sort of thing, it wasn't limited to the Old Testament. We also see the early church doing this at times. The Apostle Paul, for instance, addresses the misuse of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper with the church in Corinth. He tells us that it is possible to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Nonetheless, for those who truly desire to meet with the Lord, the Lord has provided the means. So as Bert Parsons states, if we actually believe God is sovereign, we must trust his sovereignly appointed means to bring about his desired ends. The means that God has appointed for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace are what we call the ordinary means of grace, namely the word, prayer, the sacraments, and necessarily joined to these the church's discipline and care of souls. These means are appointed by God, are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and point us to Christ. And they sustain us and nourish us in our union with Christ as we rest in the sovereign ends of our triune God. Said more simply, if we're looking to encounter God, 
then we have to commit ourselves to these means that God has given us. We must resist attempts at clever, fresh ways to contrive religious experiences through some form of manufactured devotion, hoping that God will be impressed by our piety and will show up, or that we will whip ourselves into some sort of mystical state that will give us access to God. We must reject that there is some spiritual secret here. There is no secret. There is no secret. God has been clear about how we can access it. We simply make ourselves available to him as the early church did through prayer, through the reading and study of God's word, through the sacraments. I really hope that this passage impresses this truth upon us this morning. But I realize that there might be some who counter saying, well, I pray frequently. I have never had an experience like Cornelius and Peter had. The Lord has never spoken to me like he did to them, nor have I ever been given a vision. And as you read through Acts, you might see this happening with some frequency and wonder why you have never heard the Lord speak audibly to you like he seems to be doing with so many in the early church. You might wonder why you have never received a vision from the Lord. You might wonder why the Lord has never given you such clear instruction. And you might wonder what that means. What does it mean if we've never experienced the Lord in these ways? Does it mean that you aren't praying correctly? Does it mean the Lord isn't listening to your prayers? We might be faced with questions like this as we go through Acts. Pastor John asked these sort of questions last Sunday concerning miracles. Why don't we see more signs and wonders today? Is God no longer at work in these ways? And the answer to these questions about God speaking to us in these ways will follow in the same vein as the answer to our questions about miracles. We need to first recognize that while we are receiving a truth here that applies to us concerning God meeting with us through prayer, there is also something unique happening here. We have to recognize that this is a particular moment in salvation history and that God is intervening and guiding the course of events in ways that are perhaps different than we might expect to experience today. Because scripture means to make clear to us that what is occurring here is through God-directed initiatives and not man-directed. God is working and guiding to achieve his purposes for his gospel to go forth and his church to be built. And chapter 10 of Acts is a moment in which this is particularly important. You see, what we are dealing with in this narrative is a clear turning point in Acts. And it's a clear turning point in Acts because it's a turning point for the spread of the gospel. This is a moment in which God divinely directs for the gospel to move to the Gentiles. But there are barriers between the Jews and Gentiles that are preventing this from happening in a way that brings Jews and Gentiles together as the body of Christ, namely that the Gentiles were seen as unclean. How then would the Jews be able to relate to them and have fellowship with them? And so God very unmistakably intervenes here in a way that's needed to make clear that these barriers need not impede what God has ordained. 
This moment frees up the church to take the gospel to the Gentile world. And with all of this in mind, we should understand that there are things which we read of in Acts which are not to be interpreted as normative in the Christian experience today. They are happening in a particular way for a particular moment in history. In other words, when we pray for something like guidance and discernment from the Lord, we should expect the Lord to hear and respond. But we shouldn't expect the Lord to reveal himself to us in a vision. We aren't walking around looking for a burning bush to speak to us. When I sat in my dorm room at Mississippi State University freshman year and asked the Lord in prayer what his will for me was, was it to become a medical doctor or a pastor? I wasn't expecting him to open the heavens and to speak in an audible voice to me, giving me specific instruction, right? It isn't that God can't do that. He obviously can do that. But whether I became a doctor or a pastor was not equivalent in the scope of salvific history with Peter and Cornelius being brought together here in chapter 10 of Acts. So a more realistic expectation for me was that God would help me through the power of the Holy Spirit to discern my gifts. That he would shape my affections to give me a passion for the things he wanted me to do. That he would place people and opportunities in my life that would help me to make good and godly decisions. That he would speak to me through his word. So I want to caution us here that we need to base our expectations on a clear understanding of the context of Acts. Should we have an expectation that the ordinary means of grace will place us in a position to have an encounter with the Lord? Absolutely. Does this mean I should expect the Lord to speak to me in an audible voice or be given visions? No, not at all. It doesn't even mean that I should expect to have some sort of deep spiritual experience as some may be looking for every time I pray. Does this mean that God isn't present? No. Does it mean that God no longer communicates through visions? Not necessarily. For many who have converted to Christianity from Islam, they report seeing a vision. I've got a friend who came to Jesus Christ through such an experience. He grew up a Muslim in Turkey. And he shared with me that when he, a, a moment when he was at the age of 13, he was praying and the Lord Jesus appeared to him as a bright light and said to him, you are mine. And in a moment, his life was transformed. And I had no reason to doubt the authenticity of his story, his experience radically transformed his life, and now he is a committed follower of Christ, bearing fruit for God's kingdom. But this isn't going to probably be our common experience. It didn't seem to be all that common in Acts either, actually. So we certainly shouldn't set it as a benchmark of true faith. This is what the charismatic movement has in many ways done. They've set things like speaking in tongues or healing ministries as marks of being a true believer. You aren't a true Christian unless you can speak in tongues. You don't have true faith unless you have a faith which can produce a miracle. It's nonsense. 
It isn't what the Bible teaches. The only miracle that matters in terms of our salvation is the one that occurs when God delivers us from darkness into his marvelous light. When he brings us from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a miracle he works in us, not through us, that is the mark of being a true believer. Have you been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? That's the only thing we need to be certain of, to be assured of our salvation. So should we expect to have a vision? No, probably not. So why are Muslims receiving visions? My honest answer is, I don't know. My guess is, though, that God is communicating by other means to draw people to himself in areas of the world in which his written word is not very accessible. For us, though, who have God's word, his special revelation, we have everything we need for salvation. We have everything that we need to know about God, everything we need to know about God's grace, everything we need to know about what it means to obey God and follow Jesus Christ. It can all be found in his word. It is the revelation of himself and his will. There is nothing lacking. He has revealed himself to us and has spoken to us. And yet there are many here in America who are still seeking a word from the Lord while their Bibles sit collecting dust on the shelf. If you desire to hear a word from the Lord, read the Bible. And I want to encourage us today to see Scripture in conjunction with prayer as a primary means by which we should seek to listen to God's voice in our lives. We understand prayer to be a dialogue between ourselves and the Lord. This dialogue, though, begins in Scripture. It's in Scripture that we learn who God is and what he has done for us. It is God, then, that initiates this conversation and invites us into it by his grace. It is God who enables us to know him and to pray to him as our Heavenly Father. Our prayer, then, is our our response to who he is and what he has done for us. And this means that our prayer must be deeply rooted in Scripture and guided by Scripture. We don't, in other words, get to set the terms of our conversation with God. This is what Tim Keller calls the tragedy of untethered prayer. This is prayer that has no starting point in the reality of who God has revealed himself to be. Here's a quote from a book on prayer that is unfortunately probably on many Christians' bookshelves. Let's say prayer is to what the Greeks called the really real, what lies within us, beyond the scrim of our values, positions, convictions, and wounds. Or let's say it's a cry from within to life or love with capital L's. Nothing could matter less than what we call this force. Let's not get bogged down on whom or what we pray to. Let's just say prayer is communication from our hearts to the great mystery or goodness. That's from a book written to Christians. No, let's not pray like that. 
As Tim Keller states, without prayer that answers the God of the Bible, we will only be talking to ourselves. If we leave the Bible out, we may plumb the plumb our impressions and feelings and imagine God saying various things to us. But how can we be sure that we are not self-deceived? In prayer, we must speak to the God who has first spoken to us and revealed himself to Israel and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We must understand ourselves to be beloved children who come before a loving father. And we come to this father through his son who has opened for us a new and living way by his blood and intercedes on our behalf. And we come in the power of the Holy Spirit who helps us to bring us into communion with God and to converse with him. This is vitally important that we understand all of this. This is the only way that we can expect to have deep fellowship with God through prayer. And we won't have intimate knowledge of these things if we don't begin with Scripture. So prayer doesn't begin with us talking. It actually begins with us listening to God's Word in Scripture. But our prayer must also be guided by Scripture must be guided by Scripture, not only because Scripture gives us language for prayer. It certainly does that. But also because Scripture is the means by which God has given to us to hear his voice. We can only hear and understand his voice, though, if the Holy Spirit grants us the ability to hear and understand. God's word is living and active. But we might be very well deaf to hear it and dumb to understand it. This is why we offer a prayer of illumination before we read Scripture every Sunday morning. We desperately need the help of the Holy Spirit who first breathed out this word in leading us into all truth and discerning what it means for our daily living. And with the Holy Spirit's assistance, as we read, we truly hear God's voice, convicting us of our sin and leading us to repentance calling us to faith and obedience, speaking words of comfort and assurance, encouraging us and strengthening us to be steadfast in faith. And I hope as we meditate on Scripture, as we pray over Scripture, we are actively asking God to reveal to us how we can obey His Word in our lives. This is how Scripture and prayer work together to help us have true conversation with God. God speaks through his word. We listen. Then we speak through prayer, not only telling God about our various wants and desires, nor only asking God to provide for our needs and the needs of those around us, but we also ask for God to help us apply his word to our lives. And then when we have done that, we listen. We truly listen. Not, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, with only half an ear, assuming what God will say, only listening to what we want him to say, but truly open to God's voice. Here's what Martin Luther encourages. He encourages us to be open to the guiding of the Holy Spirit as we pray over Scripture. He states, when such rich thoughts come, just let other prayers go. Give these thoughts plenty of room. Do not in any way hinder them. For in this way, the Holy Spirit is preaching to you. 
his sermon is better than a thousand of our prayers. Many times I have learned more in the process of praying a single prayer than I would have struggled to learn through much writing and reading. You see, Luther understood this well. We should expect to hear from God when we read and meditate on his word and pray over it. I hope that we are seeking from the Lord what his word means for us today, right now. I hope that we are seeking to obey his word. Lord, what does it mean for me to obey your word, to hold fast to what is good? How do you want me to love others with brotherly affection? How is it that you call me to be patient in tribulation? What are the ways in which I can contribute to the needs of the saints? When we're reading Romans 12, these are the things we should be praying. If you really want to hear the Lord speak to the specifics of your life, pray over his word. Ask from him in prayer how you might obey his word in your life. And when you do this, practice silence. Give opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak. We don't always need to come to prayer with such an agenda of what we want God to do for us as much as we need to come to prayer with a desire simply for communion with God. We need to stop being preoccupied with ourselves and learn to enter into conversation with God to listen as well as speak, to share our needs as well as seek his desires for us. And it might just be That as you do this, you will hear from the Holy Spirit. You might just sense him guiding you to specific action or challenging you to new means of obedience or calling you to die to yourself in specific ways. The Lord does still speak to us, perhaps not in the ways he did to those in the early church, but prayer remains the means of intimate communion with God. So Are you praying regularly? Are you coming to God expecting to encounter him? Are you listening to his voice as you read his word and pray over it? I truly hope that this passage is a reminder and an encouragement to you to use the ordinary means of grace as ways by which God invites you to come to him, to have fellowship with him, to grow in intimate relationship with him, And to hear his voice. It should amaze us that the ruler of the universe has invited us to come to him in these ways. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you all thanks and praise for being a God who does not remain distant and removed from us. Rather, in your grace, you have humbled yourself come to us and made yourself available to us. We thank you that by Jesus' blood shed for us that we can come into your holy presence. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who brings us into communion with you and assists us as we pray. We thank you for your word preserved for us through the generations that we can hear your voice even today. Lord, forbid it that we would ever neglect the opportunity to meet with you through prayer and the reading of your word. Help us this day to commit ourselves in new ways to these practices that we might grow in deeper relationship with you. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God Almighty. From thence you shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.